So every time I refill my water bottle, I notice there are like four half-empty cups sitting on top of the lunchroom fridge on our floor here. And I think they've been here for like a week. <laughs> yeah, that's nasty. Yeah. And this lollipop has been here for weeks, too. Who leaves candy lying around in the studio? I think we should probably just get started. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I mean, really, whose job is it to clean up this stuff? Why didn't they just clean it back to themselves? I know it's not our job to do this. No, it's totally not our job. And I mean, it's it's not like there's garbage all over the office here. It's just I feel like I'm noticing it more because of this show. Yeah. Um, and we asked our Battle Tactics Facebook group if any of them had ever had an experience like this where they felt kind of pressured to clean up after their co-workers i would like to clean up those cups on top of the fridge but i'm not going to because it's not your job <laughs> exactly <laughs> but a lot of listeners responded to that question we asked them so many listeners and it seemed like almost everyone in the group had a story i was interviewing somebody for a faculty position this is kirsty sandy she's the dean of arts education and culture at Keene state college he had brought with him, and this is kind of unusual for an interview. Nobody ever does this. He had brought with him a soda, like a big soda like you get at 7-Eleven. And he had brought a wrapped sandwich with him as well. And he was eating during the interview. So he would talk and take a few bites of his sandwich and drink some of his soda. He ate a sandwich during an interview with his future boss? That's weird. Yeah, but I mean, so maybe he's anemic, though. Maybe, get this, maybe he has like a dentist appointment in the middle of the night that he has to fast before. Okay. Well, he, you know, we finished speaking and he crumpled up the sandwich wrapper, handed them both to me, and I wasn't sure if I should take them right away, like, what is he doing? Handed them both to me and said, do you mind disposing of these for me? I was really just so stunned by it. And so I just took them and disposed of them for him. <laughs> I can only assume it was sort of this aggressive move on his part to, I don't know, establish dominance or to say, look, you know, you think you're powerful, but you're not. You're not that important. It was just, it, it felt like he was just kind of putting me in my place, really. Oh, that is unbelievable. And yet, I can totally believe that happened. Yeah, me too. And that's because women are socialized and pressured to do this type of work, undervalued work that isn't officially part of their job. Yeah, I believe you you call it doing a job at your job that is not your job. It's not my job. <laughs> Scholars <laughs> and social scientists call it something, too. They call it office housework. Right. And that is today's battle. Understanding how we got to this place where a dean at a college is cleaning up after her interviewee. And you know we've got tactics. Let's get it. This is Battle Tactics for your sexist workplace. I'm Eula Scott Bino. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And yes, your workplace is sexist. Even if you've never eaten a sandwich during a job interview. And even if you clean up your own lunch garbage. If you've never heard the term office housework before, that's because it's relatively new. The term didn't even exist until 2014. It would have been helpful to have the term when The Office was still airing. You know The Office, right? I get to say an NPR thing. Do you mean the American version or the British version? Ugh, not the. I mean the American version, of course. <laughs> so I hope everyone knows The Office. The party planning committee could have been named The Office Housework Committee. Party planning committee, listen up. Michael would like trick candles for his birthday cake, so make that a priority. Where do we get those? 
Not my problem. So thanks to the office and also our real lives at work, right. we know office housework existed well before the name did. Joan C. Williams knows this really well, too. Joan is a distinguished professor of law and the founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings. She's one of the 10 most cited scholars in her field. Go, girl. And she and her daughter, Rachel, are the authors of What Works for Women at Work. And remember when we said the term office housework didn't exist until 2014? Joan's daughter, Rachel, actually coined the term. So Joan literally wrote the book on this stuff. Yes. Well, I mean, co-wrote it and birthed the other author. <laughs> totally. And Joan decided to study office housework as a kind of gender bias, in part because of an experience she had early on in her career. I really wanted to be a serious scholar. And I knew that serious scholarship was going to, was what was going to get me tenure. And serious scholarship meant she would need lots of time to do lots of research. But then she was asked to be part of the admissions committee. This would require reading through hundreds and hundreds of student applications. That does not sound like research. Not at all. But Joan also noticed a pattern when it came to who was doing this type of work. I later found out that the one of the only other junior women before me had been assigned to play exactly the same important but unforgiving and unrewarded role. Unlike her, I just said, no, I wouldn't do it, that I I needed the time for research. Were there any repercussions? I'm afraid to ask you that question. Were there any repercussions? Yes, there were, like uh, 25 years of them. (laughs) I was, uh, it was one of the early times when I was seen as not a team player. I was seen as a prima donna. Um, And, of course, the more successful I became, the stronger that narrative became. 25 years of consequences just for trying to avoid an unpaid assignment that she knew would be a total time suck and wouldn't get her tenure. To me, that just sounds like a good career move. You would think so. But being tasked with office housework can be tricky to navigate for a lot of reasons. One reason is it doesn't all look the same. I mean, Joan's experience describes just one kind of office housework. There's definitely more than one kind. The first kind is um, literal housework, like planning parties or ordering food. The second is administrative work, like taking notes or finding a, a time or place to meet. The third is emotion work of like, he's upset, can you fix it? And the fourth is undervalued work. Office housework is all the stuff that needs to get done at work to keep it clean, running smoothly, and just make it an okay space to be in. But to be fair, I love that KUW is better than an okay space. That's true. The birthday parties are pretty great. Sometimes there are two kinds of cake, Jeannie. (laughs) I mean, it's delicious. And this is the only place in town where I can get a decaf drip coffee. I mean, seriously. (laughs) But I agree with you. Those perks are awesome. It is also awesome that here at KUOW, it is part of some folks' jobs to plan monthly birthday parties. The not awesome part is that, according to Joan's research, women are disproportionately expected and pressured to do all of those kinds of office housework, even though it's not their jobs. And when you get bogged down doing too much office housework, it makes it harder to get glamour work. Ooh, that sounds fun. What's glamour work? The glamour work really varies from workplace to workplace and industry to industry, but it's basically the work that's highly rewarded and will get you promoted. Oh, so it's still just work. (laughs) Yes, but most people want to do the glamour work, like coming up with an idea, landing a big deal, or 
publishing research that'll help you get tenure. Absolutely. But you can't get to those things if you're always taking notes during meetings. Right. Or getting everybody's lunch orders. Or if you're too busy planning the paternity leave party for Paul. Right. But what if you're like me and you like doing some of that work? I mean, I enjoy putting together a little office shindig every once in a while. Well, Joan says that's fine, but it comes with some risks that you need to be aware of. If you really like doing this stuff and you are ambitious, but you're willing to work twice as hard so you can do this stuff and actually also stuff that's going to get you promoted, be my guest. But if you like doing this stuff and don't understand that even though you may be praised to the skies for it, it will not get you promoted. Okay, so that's important to know. Planning parties and taking notes might be something you enjoy, but it won't get you ahead. But also, there was this one particular kind of office housework Joan mentioned that seems especially tricky. Feminist scholars call it emotional labor. And one way that this plays out is when a woman is expected to act as a peacemaker. The stakes can be really high for a woman thrown into that role. And those risks compound when you take into consideration the amount of time emotional labor can take. Joan told us about one woman scientist's experience. All of her colleagues, when a graduate student was having troubles or emotional troubles, they sent all of the graduate students to her including the men's graduate students they sent to her. So she had to spend a tremendous amount of time coaching students and comforting them, and they weren't even her students. So that's a really dramatic example of emotion work being extracted from a woman professional. How common is it for women in workplaces to be expected to carry that kind of emotional load? It's extraordinarily common. It comes from sometimes colleagues. It also often comes from people junior to the women, where the prescriptive stereotype of women, part of it is that they're, you know, carrying selfless mother types. Oh, okay. Prescriptive stereotypes. We need to define that. These ideas we have about how women should be caring, supportive, good team players versus how men should be strong, decisive, go-getters. Yes. And these ideas show up all over the place. Soraya Shamali is the director of the Women's Media Center Speech Project and the author of the new book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. And she says, if you want to see prescriptive stereotypes in action, look no further than your virtual assistants. Hey, Alexa, why do so many virtual assistants come with default voices that sound like women? Sorry, I don't know that. (laughs) Okay. What do you know? Well... So that's the virtual assistant Amazon built. And to use it, you have to buy a specific piece of hardware. But a lot of us already have virtual assistants at the ready in our smartphones. Think Siri or Cortana. Mm -hmm. And their default voices are meant to sound feminine, too. Both Amazon and Microsoft have said they did a lot of testing on different kinds of voices for their AI assistants. They've both said that women's voices tested best. According to Microsoft, testers found the feminine-sounding voice the most believable for an assistant that's supposed to be, and I'm quoting here, helpful, supportive, and trustworthy. So those are the qualities I'd want for a robot that does my digital housework, like setting timers, playing music, or ordering some socks. Totally. But digital glamour work? You better ask Watson. Hello, my name is Watson. Together, we can outthink the limits of what's possible. Welcome to the cognitive era. 
Watson has a computer with amazing capabilities, and he's meant to be used at work, doing high-level tasks like analyzing financial data or helping doctors work on cancer treatments, like big-time stuff. Mm -hmm. Also, Watson was on Jeopardy before. Now the last clue. Even a broken one of these on your wall is right twice a day. Watson. What is clock? Clock is correct. And with that, you move up to 23,000. And he won, by the way. <gasps> right! And IBM, the company that built Watson, has said that a male-sounding voice tested better because Watson needed to sound self-assured and speak in short, decisive sentences. Well, damn. Mm-hmm. Even our robot assistants are subject to prescriptive stereotypes. So what does that mean for us actual human women in our actual human workplaces? Joan C. Williams says it means women end up doing a lot more extra work to perform just enough of the masculine-coded stuff while also performing just enough of the feminine-coded stuff. One of the patterns of gender bias is called the tightrope, where what's valued in high-level professional jobs are things that are coded masculine. And so women often perform in masculine ways in order to be seen as competent. The only problem is that women are expected to be feminine. And so women often have to walk this tightrope between being liked but not respected or respected but not liked. And Joan says often women internalize the absurd standards of the tightrope. Sometimes women volunteer for this stuff because they have a self-image of themselves as a helpful team player. And I think it's important to recognize it is important to be a team player. Um, (laughs) But sometimes people use the term team player in really different ways for men and for women. And for women, men are really sometimes just required to be a good team player. And women, sometimes that term is used to police them into subordinate work or office housework roles. Ugh. On top of being pressured into or assigned the office housework, we pressure ourselves into doing it because we want to see ourselves as likable team player types. I know. <laughs> the call is coming from inside the house, Eula. Ugh. But wait, we have to add another layer. We already talked about how office housework makes it harder to get and complete the glamour work we want, but it can also be a bit of a trap. Once you start doing the office housework, it's even harder to get out of it later on down the road. Like quicksand. Exactly. But that's only the case for women. Men are often seen of like, well, he has his dignity and he has his family to support. So, of course, he's going to be ambitious. And if we don't provide him with a future path, he will leave. So those kinds of prescriptive stereotypes of men make it much more likely that a man will kind of naturally be seen as having to progress. The, again, the prescriptive stereotypes of women are that women, you know, they don't have, a, they're, they're earning pin money, they don't have a family to support, and they love to help. They're such good team players, and they're not natural leaders. I wish we had a prescriptive stereotype sound effect for this episode so we could just play it every time they come up. Totally, like this. (laughs) Sad trombone. (laughs) But the stakes can be a whole lot higher than we realize with this stuff, Jeannie. Joan told us about a woman in a STEM organization who worked in quality control. One day, she had to confront her coworkers and let them know that there was an error in their calculations. They really did not like that she did this. They really, really did not like that she did this. And she encountered tremendous, tremendous backlash after doing that. Okay, so this woman did her job. Yeah. She pointed out a mistake that could have caused a major issue, and she got punished for it. Damn. For doing her job, she fell off the tightrope. 
And I said, oh, golly, so what are you doing now? And she said, I'm bringing in cupcakes and smiling. (laughs) And I was going like, oh, my gosh, that's actually dangerous in this context. So if women get the message that the only way that their careers are going to thrive and they're going to be liked enough to be promoted is that they just be amiable, then some of the important work that they're assigned to do, people aren't going to listen to them. You know, if you're giving women important jobs, that's not a good move for the organization. The stakes are high for all of us if we keep repeating this pattern where women are the helpers and men are the leaders. Okay, so how do we start changing this? How do we change the pattern of women getting pushed into office housework and instead focusing on that glamour work without being penalized? Oh, you know the answer, Jeannie. Yeah, we're getting into tactics. Yay! Alexa, do you have any tactics for how to fight against the prescriptive stereotypes that push women into office housework roles? Sorry, I don't know that. Come on. Alexa, well, we know tactics. Plenty of tactics to get us out of office housework after the break. Alexa, make a fart noise. (laughs) Yay, Alexa! Clearly programmed by men. The break is over. Yes. Welcome back, you guys. Here's what we know so far. Women overwhelmingly tend to get pressured into doing office housework tasks. And a big reason for that are these long-standing prescriptive stereotypes of how women are supposed to be and how men are supposed to be. Right? Thanks, patriarchy. Thank you so much. But there are definitely going to be moments where it's clear office housework needs to get done and nobody is doing it. Mm -hmm. Joan C. Williams has a tactic for that. And it's simply this. Never volunteer for office housework when it needs to be done. Just don't do it. Never, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> and Joan's got a different tactic for times when someone else asks or directs you to take on some office housework. It's a tactic she wishes she knew about earlier in her own career. It's called the strategic no. Where you go out and get some of the glamour work. And then the next time that someone comes to you with an office housework assignment... You say, you know, I would love to be able to tell to help Tim on the paperclips committee. But unfortunately, I'm really working hard with Robert and we're close to landing this new client. And Robert really needs my help. So I'm not gonna be able to help Tim. And then think about somebody for whom this opportunity could be a good opportunity to grow your network or develop a new skill set and suggest that person preferably a man, um, for this office housework assignment. Oh, the paperclips committee. Gary would be amazing for the paperclips committee. Yeah. But wait, we're not done with the strategic no yet. There are other ways to deploy it. The other thing that you should do as part of the strategic no is to go out and get a few office housework assignments and um, that will actually that could actually help your career. For example, help you grow your network within the within the organization. Um, so one thing that some savvy women do, for example, when they're um, they're asked to chair a committee, is they say, "I'll do it if I can co-chair it with X." And X is somebody higher up with whom they need to build a close relationship. So that's um, that's part of the strategic no. It's also part of making the office housework work for you. Right. But the office housework still needs to get done. 
You have to be intentional about who does it and when. But wait, when we say you, we mean you managers. Hey, you. You bosses. Hi. It's on you to make sure everyone shares the office house workload. And Joan C. Williams says it's on you to make sure everyone shares the glamour work, too. Managers should be thinking about what is the glamour work and that they have control over and what is kind of the, the office housework. And if someone does a poor job, send the message that, okay, you're going to have to do it again. And this is, a, this is a work requirement. And I just saw poor work performance. And I know you're not pleased about that. So let's do a redo um, in order that the men don't just um, do a poor job and never be asked again. That is so important. If a dude uses the tactic of making disgusting coffee in order to get out of making it again, make that a performance problem. And we all know this here in Seattle. I mean, everybody should know this. Making bad coffee deserves severe punishment. It does indeed. So that was a lot of tactics, Eula, like a lot. (laughs) So if you want to read up on this more, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at KUOW.org slash BTSW. We'll have links to Joan's work and other researchers, too. Right. And there are so many ways to tackle this problem. Tell us which tactic you use and how it goes. And we'll send you our glamorous no badge. I've never seen no look so yes. (laughs) Well, that calls for another tactic, Eula. I mean, lots of folks need help building their saying no muscle. I feel like I definitely do. Same, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so practice. Practice saying no with an ally. Your partner or your child, honestly, may be too high stakes. I don't know if, like, I have tried telling my two-year-old no, and it kind of broke me. Damn. So let's tactically practice our glamorous no's, like, right now. How about that? Okay. Okay. So Jeannie, will you give me a ride home? No. Oh, so glamorous. <laughs> Will you give me 40 for a cab? No. Damn. That's my glamorous no. <laughs> Will you throw away my socks? No. Damn. Wait, I have a question for you too, Eula. Yeah. In this long uphill battle to fight sexism at work, if I pull my load, will you pull yours? Hell yes. I can't say no to that. Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is a production of KUOW in Seattle. This episode was produced by Maya Aina. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, no, no. And this episode was her idea, by the way. Yes. Edited by Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. We appreciate all of your hard work. Special thanks to Jim Gates, who chairs the Paperclip Committee. Our managing producer is Brendan Sweeney. Brendan would be great for the Paperclips Committee. Yeah, for real. Yes. And this podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by Jessica Bennett. Our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. Music in this episode by Kevin McLeod. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And I'm Eula Scott Bino. Keep up the good fight. You'll hear us next time. Alexa, why don't you like us? I don't have an opinion on that. <laughs> the nerve. The nerve. I feel so totally disheartened now.